Uh, Our passage comes out of Daniel 9. So starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarus, of the lineage of the Medes, was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned. And he has confirmed all his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truths. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for your sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, 
reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. The word of the Lord. Good morning, saints. I um, am blessed to be with you today, Um, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to turn there, and we'll go through the slides that I prepared. Uh, But I want to say some things, right? Um, And that is, we'll talk about who Daniel is, and I may or may not be able to read that. I think I can. Um, Yeah, I have trifocals for those of you who are wondering, right? So Daniel actually was, when we come to the book of Daniel, we understand that as you enter the book, Daniel has been taken captive. He was taken captive when he was about 15 years old. When you get to Daniel chapter 9, this was some 67 years later. So as he starts writing in Daniel chapter 9, he's in his early mid-80s. That's how old he is when he's writing this. So we understand from all of this that he was a faithful servant of God from the time that he was 15, even up until the time that we see chapter 9 open. But what we're going to do today, right, is that we are going to, let me see, did I skip it? Okay, what we're going to see is we're going to see how Daniel prayed to God and how God answered those prayers. And what I'm going to attempt to do today is we're going to go down deep, but then we're going to come up. Um, I'm going to try to craft this message so that Those of you who are not that familiar with Scripture will gain out of it. Those of you who are familiar with Scripture will gain out of it. And we'll all learn something together. But what we need to understand is that when God answers prayer, he doesn't simply answer the words that come out of our mouth. We're all very familiar with when when the Lord tells us in the epistles that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, right? And he prays with prayers that cannot be uttered. When we actually look at the Gospels and we see what Jesus did and how he answered questions that were provided to him, whether it be by the Pharisees or by his disciples, he did not always answer in a way that we would expect. We would ask him one thing, he would be asked one thing, and he would answer seemingly with something that was a little bit different. And really what it is, is that he's doing what we see the father pattern here in his response to Daniel. The reason why I asked Mark to read those last verses from 20 to 23, is because we understand from those verses that the 70-week prophecy, which is what follows verse 23 and is the rest of the chapter, that is an answer to the first 19 verses that contain the prayer of Daniel. So if you really want to understand what's happening in in that prophecy and what God is actually saying he is doing, you need to understand what Daniel was praying. When you understand what Daniel was praying, you need to understand how God responded to him. So Daniel prayed for deliverance of his people from their captivity. And that's a reasonable prayer. They had been in in, in captivity for some 67 years at this point. But God responded by telling Daniel of the deliverance of his people from their sin. When you look at that prophecy, what is the prophecy? Part of what it's telling them is their final deliverance. That's what's being contained in there. And by the way, I'll just pause to say this. If you're trying to understand prophecy, and many of us will go to Daniel 9, 
Daniel 9 was an answer, as I said, to prayer. But you must read 10, 11, and 12 in order to get the full picture that God is painting for us. So with that said, Daniel also prayed for God to be merciful upon his people and forgive their transgressions. And God responded by telling Daniel that, his, that of his mercy to deliver them from the very presence of sin. So they would be forgiven and they would be delivered. And when you understand that the seven-week prophecy brings us to the destruction of the Antichrist, and we see that God is going to reign supreme, then he is telling Daniel in his answer to prayer, you're praying for what you're seeing right now, the deliverance from forgiveness of sin. I'm going to deliver you from the presence of sin. Then you see that Daniel confessed God's righteousness and his judgment of Judah's sin. And this is where it gets really tough for Daniel, because God responded by telling him of greater judgments to come. And so when we pray to God, God doesn't simply just answer what we utter. He answers what we need. What was Daniel really praying for in that prayer? He was praying that his people would finally be delivered from captivity. But that wasn't his whole hope. The whole hope really was for his people to one day apprehend the promise that God made to Abraham and that they would be dwelling in peace. That was really what his heart was. So God just didn't simply answer in the way that he might have expected. But what we see about Daniel's prayer are the following. It was an informed prayer. And many times when folks look at this, they'll say that the 70 years of captivity was prophesied by Jeremiah in chapter 25, which is 100% true. But Daniel wasn't just referring to Jeremiah chapter 25, or what we call Jeremiah chapter 25. We know the chapter divisions came way later, right? But he also referred to Jeremiah chapter 7, where God tells Israel that they sin to their own hurt and to the confusion of their own faces. You see that as a direct reference here. So God, Daniel had a very informed prayer. And we're going to learn from this, ser this sermon that when we pray to God, we likewise should have an informed prayer. How was Daniel's prayer so informed? It was informed by his reading of Scripture. He read Scripture, he poured over Scripture, he understood Scripture, and he prayed to God what God had already promised to do. We're also going to learn, as we just discussed, how God answers prayer. What did God say to Daniel? What we're going to find out is that Jeremiah is only the tip of the iceberg in Jeremiah chapter 25. We'll find that we're in Leviticus. We'll find that we're in Chronicles. And all this plays into the prayer of 25 and the answer of the prophecy. We're going to say that when we study prophecy, it has... Uh, should have the effect on us so that we, we want to live in light of prophecy. If God has made these promises, if God has made these declarations, if God has told us what is to come, should we live ignorantly of that? If God has told us that there is going to be a final deliverance and we're currently being persecuted, should we live as though we're defeated? If God has told us 
that their that sin was going to be judged. Should we live as though judgment isn't coming and warn no one? We need to live in light of prophecy. We need to be a witness where we are. Daniel was taken captive at the age of 15. At the age of 82, he is still interceding for his people. He is still being a blessing in the land where he had been taken. And he is still pleading his cause to God. Wherever you are, if you are in school, if you are raising children at home, if you are working anywhere in industry, if you are between jobs, if you are on the mission field, if you're in the grocery store, be a witness where you are. What does it mean to be a witness? I'm witnessing for somebody else. When the Bible tells us that we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ, an ambassador represents somebody else and has somebody else's message. Be a witness where you are. And finally, as I alluded to earlier, look forward to freedom. So if you get nothing else out of this message, we're going to begin here, we're going to end here. I want you to pray with informed prayers. I want you to understand how God answers prayer. I want you to live in light of prophecy. I want you to be a witness where you are, and I want you to look forward to freedom. My wife was talking to me the other day, and she was saying, we witness, we witness not to make friends. We witness so that people will be free. Right? And that's, that's what we really want to get out of this. So you need to have an informed prayer. And I'll apologize right now because I'm not that uh, versed at doing the live streaming. So these slides were meant to build out. They're not building out, so some of them won't look right. That's okay. But I just want you to be forewarned. And this is one of them. <laughs> so I mentioned that Daniel prayed with knowledge. He had been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And we talked about the verses that he'd been reading already. There are two direct references. The one in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 to 12, where God says that there is going to be a captivity. It is going to be 70 years. And that 70 years is going to occur for a specific reason that we talked about. The God who we serve is very precise. He's very orderly. and He's very logical. And he says to us that if you go to, I think it is Proverbs 25 too, and I'm going to paraphrase this, or poor paraphrase, but you'll get the sense. He says, it is the glory of God to hide the things, but the pleasure of kings is to search out the matter. So God wants us to pour over his word, to study it in order to learn him. So Daniel was reading, and he referenced directly the 70-year captivity as was predicted in Jeremiah. And then, of course, when we get to verse 8, that is what references confusion of faces, which we find also in Jeremiah. But Jeremiah's prophecy itself was a fulfillment by God of things that God had said earlier. If we go to Leviticus chapter 25, Israel was commanded to give the land a Sabbath year continually, six years of sowing and reaping, and then one year of rest. What God said was that in that sixth year, he would give them such abundance that the food that they got out of that sixth year would last them for three years. Why three years? Because in the seventh year is the Sabbath for the land. 
The first year, they can start working the land, and the second year, they can start reaping from the land. So he gave them in the sixth year enough gain and bounty for three years. And God would bless the people, as I stated, for three years. And Israel was warned that they would be enslaved for as many years as they neglected the Sabbath if they did not keep it. So the prophecy in Jeremiah 25 harkens back to Leviticus. Israel had neglected the Sabbath for 490 years. We find that in 2 Chronicles. And because they had neglected the Sabbath for 490 years, God said to them, when they finally came to, when they finally came to the point where he was bringing them into captivity, that he was going to take back all those years that they neglected. So God required these years of rest to be provided, uh, and that is when he delivered them into captivity. But as we look at this, something comes to mind as we inform our own reading of scripture. What was Daniel's view of prophecy? Daniel viewed prophecy as being literal. He viewed prophecy as being exact. He did not allegorize prophecy. He did not say, okay, well, what God means here, if you were into replacement theology, um, it really applies to somebody else. He took it literally. And so we need to do the same when we go ahead and we look at prophecy. What is God saying? What is he literally saying? What is he promising to do? Daniel is probably the second most attacked book of the Bible by those who oppose it because it is so precise and it gives you numbers that you can actually add up. It states things that are going to happen in the order that they're going to happen. If any of us have ever looked at or heard of um, oh, that, that famous secular prophet, Nostradamus, Right? And Nostradamus makes all these prophecies, and they say some of them have come true. If you've ever read a prophecy of Nostradamus, you could drive a Boeing 747 through it. It's so general. How does God make prophecies? They're so specific. What is God's requirement for someone to be a prophet of his? That they need to be right 100% of the time. Not 99, not 97, not 99 and a half, 100% of the time. Because God is never wrong. If God has said it, it's going to happen. And Daniel's view of prophecy was he believed not only that God is, but he believed that God spoke. And that's how he viewed it. So now we come to where we're going to start getting a little bit deep. Because when we look at what's happening in Jeremiah in, in a Levit Leviticus, Leviticus talks about keeping the Sabbath year. Everything we've been talking about so far is with regards to the Sabbath year. And there is a great importance to the Sabbath year, as described in Leviticus. When we look at verse 25, chapter 25, verse 8, it says, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee the forty and nine years. And then you go to 2511. 
a jubilee shall thou uh, shall that fiftieth uh, year be unto you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which grow groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vine and drought. So the Lord is saying, every six years you let the land rest. When you get to seven Sabbath years, then you have an additional year, which is the 50th year, which is called the year of Jubilee. What I'm about to go through with you plays into the 70-week prophecy. We want to make that clear so that we start tracking together. It is very related to the 70-year prophecy. The importance of the Sabbath year, just make sure I didn't skip a slide. All right. Yes, it was meant to accomplish several things. One is that the land was going to be renewed. Second is that the people would have their belief in God bolstered because they would see how God didn't just simply provide for them, but he provided for them abundantly. And then the year of Jubilee accomplished some things over and above that. There's a lot of discussion about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus. And in the year of Jubilee, not only would the land rest an additional year, but all the wrongs would have been righted. What do I mean by wrongs? Twice in that passage, God says, and you shall not oppress your brother. So what is this really telling us as we think about it? God is saying that in the year of Jubilee, by the time you get to this 50th year, I understand that you've already slid in into sin. I understand that you've moved away from me. I understand, I understand that you have mistreated your brother. If you go to the book of Amos, you'll see that one of the things that God holds against Edom is that they have mistreated their brothers. God, and you, and you go to what it says in Galatians. Galatians says, as ye therefore have opportunity, in 6.10, as ye therefore have opportunity, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. So God is saying for his people, they're to have a special love for one another and to treat them each other in a special way. And so when you got to this year of Jubilee, he would have recognized that people would have been sold into bondage, that land that would have, been, would, would have been taken away, that people would be destitute and poor, that they would be in bondage to their own brothers. And God says in the year of Jubilee, all those wrongs in terms of what you've been doing in society, we're now going to reset and we're going to bring you back to center. That's what the year of Jubilee was to accomplish. And what we see, though, is that, is that, um, and, we'll, and I'll skip a slide here or skip my statements here, is that never once did the Jews observe the Sabbath year. That means that never once did the Jews observe the year of Jubilee. So when you consider when did God tell them to start observing the Sabbath year? He told them to start doing that when they came into the land. So if you think about when they came into the land, you had Moses, and then you had you had um, you had Joshua, and Joshua brought them into the promised land. So when you go back to Moses, you're really talking a long time ago. And we'll give some years here just to give some perspective. About 1400 BC is when he died. About 1375 BC is when Joshua died. So that means that they came into the land about 1375 B.C. The book of Daniel opens up in about 605 B.C. I told you that they did not observe the Sabbath for 490 years. 490 and 605 is not 1375. 
So why did God go back 490 years? Why did he do that? You look at the third block there, you see the period of the judges from 1375 to about 1050. That was over 300 years. What was happening during the time of the judges? The people were in disobedience. God disciplined them. The people repented. God delivered them. Then what happened? The people went into disobedience. God disciplined them. The people repented. God delivered them. There was zero stability. Zero stability. They were in a tumultuous time. You now then go and you look at the period of the kings, which begins at 1095 B.C. So I would have thought, when I was first looking at this, that God commanded them to start observing the Sabbath year once the kingdom rule started. But 1095 goes into the overlaps of the period of the judges. And 1095 is not the year that Solomon took rule. That's the year that Samuel became the last judge in Israel. So what you'll see when you look in scripture is that stability was brought, brought to the people when Samuel took over from Eli. That's what you understand. And so my inference when I look at this is that, that God is saying, now that you have stability, you must start observing the Sabbath year. This is not a direct statement in scripture. This is an inference based on the timing. God doesn't choose times arbitrarily. So when he said to them, look back 490 years, that's when you should have started observing the Sabbath year. That maps to when stability was finally brought to the people through Samuel. Now, with the Sabbath years, you will find that until Samuel came, it wasn't practical for them to have actually done that because they did not have continuous control of their land. So as I stated, the Jews have never observed the Sabbath year. That also means that they never observed the year of Jubilee. But what exactly is the year of Jubilee? We went over that a little bit. We'll go over that a little bit more. But what we need to understand about the year of Jubilee is that that was the resetting that we just discussed. But in the year of Jubilee, they never once observed that. So when God says to them, we're now going to bring you into captivity for 70 years because you didn't observe the Sabbath years, why did he not talk about them not having observed the year of Jubilee? That would have been an additional nine years. But he didn't mention that. But what we do know is that in the year of Jubilee, it was to accomplish those six things that we see up there on the screen. They were going to now be devoted to God through their obedience. They would now repent of all those things that had been going wrong. They would now show mercy toward their brothers. They would now restore unto those who had their possessions and freedoms taken away. They would be blessings to others and they would be blessed by God. And God's glory would be shown through the people. Those six things were to be accomplished in the year of Jubilee. But they weren't held accountable for the year of Jubilee in terms of what they were to repay God. Why? 
will hold that question until the end. But what's important to know is that because they did not have this resetting, they were no longer a good witness for God. Because they did not have this resetting, they declined into more depravity. If you look into those two scripture references here, there, and for the sake of time, we're not going through all of these scriptures, hopefully you'll see these notes, you'll be able to download these notes, you'll be able to go through this at a slower pace. But when you look at those two scripture references there, you'll see that before Israel, that those are the ten tribes, the northern tribes were called Israel, right? Sometimes they were called Ephraim. The southern tribes were Judah. In 722 B.C. or thereabouts, the, the northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians and they were dispersed. And in 605 is when God brought in the Babylonians to take care of the southern kingdom. But when you look at what condition his people were in prior to these events, they were just like any pagan nation. They were worshiping pagan gods. They were sacrificing their children to pagan gods. They were doing all kinds of things where they were completely depraved. So what God says, if you go to Isaiah chapter 43, and we'll just do that because I, I love going to Isaiah chapter 43 and looking at this. Why did God even establish Israel as a people? He established them for three reasons. And by the way, I have a bunch of Bibles. I don't know how, how many of you have multiple Bibles, but this is not the one I have marked up. So, <laughs> But what you'll find in Isaiah 43 is that he, he separated them for a couple of reasons. In verse 9, for instance, let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses. And then in verse 10, he says, ye are my witnesses. One of the reasons why he established the Jews is so that they would be his witnesses. You'll find as you go through this, another reason why they, he established the Jews is so they could be for his praise. And then another reason why he established them is so they, they would bring, show forth his glory. When you got to these places that I was talking about, and those two scripture references there, they were no longer serving the purposes for which they had been separated by God and made a nation. They were no longer showing his glory. When you talk about God's glory, what is God's glory? God's glory is a display of his attributes. So if you talk about God's judgment, is that part of God's glory? The answer is yes. You talk about God's wrath, if he shows his wrath in this earth, is, he, is his glory on display? The answer is yes. If God is correcting sin, is his, is, his, or his, is his glory on display? The answer is yes. If God is showing mercy, and when he's showing forth his love, he's showing forth his glory. So whenever you talk about the glory of God, it is a reflection of his attributes. His attributes are on display. You could not see that with the people of Israel, the Hebrews, whether you talk about the northern kingdoms or the southern kingdoms, you could not see that at the time that they were brought into captivity. They were like any other nation. And so that's the reason why that timing was, this, was determined, because they had gotten to such a state. But Daniel, when he was praying to God in chapter 9, as was read by Mark, we were able to see that he was 
believing in God. He believed that everything that God said would happen. He believed that every curse that God promised was righteous. And what's interesting about this is that he had this informed prayer so that in year 67, he's saying we're near the 70 years, so I know that we're being afflicted and punished, but I know we're going to be delivered. There are other examples of informed prayers. If you go to Luke chapter 2 and you consider the prayer of Simeon, what was Simeon praying for? He said, God, please don't let me die before I see your Christ. Why was Simeon praying that? Because he understood that this was around the time that the Christ child should be born. How did he know that? Because he understood what was read in Daniel is my belief. Because he understood what was stated in Isaiah. He understood this. He read the scripture, and the scripture gave him this way to address God where he was able to pray to God when he knew it was on God's part. He was able to go to God with a desperate plea that he knew God was going to answer. If you go to 1 John chapter 5, around verse 17, what John says, he says, God, he says to the people, I have everything that I have ever prayed for because everything that I pray for is in God's will. Not apart from his will, it's in his will. And so when you see what was happening with Simeon, he said, God, I know it's in your will. You said the Christ was coming. According to the time that he should be presented, he has to be a kid somewhere around now. I don't know where it is. Maybe it's the next 10 years. I have no idea. But it's got to be close. Just let me live long enough to see him. And when Anna prayed after him, she was praying to all those who were looking for restoration and repentance. She had an informed prayer. So as we go and we say, hey, Lord, I, I don't even know how to dress you. Well, start by reading his word. Continue by struggling with his word, spending time with him. Make it a priority. Fight for it. Paul says that I have fought a good fight. I've run the race, and therefore laid up for me is a crown of righteousness. Because it was a fight. Have you ever read any of the other, his other epistles when he's talking to Timothy? And you see how many fight words are in there. Words of war are in there. Fight for our faith. Fight for our time with God. And when we do that, we're going to have such a belief because we'll have all the proof. So he believed God. And that meant that he could now pray with hope. And what we find is that to whom much is given, much is required. So when God separates his people and separated the Hebrews, obedience was required. If God's talking directly to you, obedience is not optional. And obedience is going to lead to blessings. But consequently, that's why disobedience leads to cursing. And what Daniel understood and accepted is that God has a way of judging disobedience. 
and the instrument of his choosing when he brought Judah into captivity was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting character because he was all about Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He was self-aggrandizing. You know, it is all about my glory. It's all about what I did. It's all about me. Wrong answer. But that's what he believed, right? He was also cruel. He killed people in very creative ways. And when you look at him, he was also pagan. He believed in a multiplicity of gods. But yet when you look at Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 9, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And the reason why God does that, and I'm going to ask you to do this too in your free time. Look up Exodus chapter 7 and start reading beyond that. In chapter 8. And look up in the, where you see when God said to Moses, hey, I'm going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. And then you see in chapter 8 where Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, what does that mean? And this is going to relate, relate this to what we're seeing on the slide. Harden means to strengthen. So when God strengthened Pharaoh's heart, was he making Pharaoh do something Pharaoh didn't already want to do? No, he was strengthening his resolve. So when God did things like inflict those, any of those ten plagues on him, the first nine, he was not going to repent. Because God had raised Pharaoh up in order to show forth God's glory. God said, I have, I, I'm going to do these, I'm going to um, deliver my people through the plagues for two reasons. One is to show the Egyptians that I am God, and two is to show my people I am God. So, when God used Nebuchadnezzar and raised up Nebuchadnezzar, he did not cause Nebuchadnezzar to be pagan. He did not cause Nebuchadnezzar to be cruel when he took the people into captivity. He didn't cause Nebuchadnezzar to go ahead and say, I'm putting his heart, I'm going to go ahead and conquer those people. God gave him success in the way his heart was already bent. So we can't accuse God of causing sin that would be blasphemous and heretical. But God permitted him to do what was in his heart as a judgment of his people. What God said is that the reason why they hadn't been conquered before is because he was restraining the hands of their enemies and protecting them. How many of you know that the reason why sin hasn't gone rampant in this world already is because we're here and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us? So the reason why this world hasn't really gone haywire as of yet is because God is still here. When he removes his protection, you're going to have what you see in the tribulation. But, as we continue with what's on the slides here, God also promises that those who hurt his people are going to be held accountable for their actions. So Nebuchadnezzar and whomever else he conquers of Israel would have been did what was in their heart to do. They were cruel as they were already inclined to be cruel. And God says, I'm going to hold you accountable for what you've done to my people. So when Daniel is reading all this, he's understanding that God is righteous. Also, God has allowed someone as cruel as Nebuchadnezzar to go ahead and win. Now, I'm going a little long, so we're going to try to speed up to the end. And I'll just tell you that if you ever come to my church to visit and you hear me preaching, I go twice as long as this. So we're going to... But we're, I'm, I'm cutting this in half because uh, 
I know that uh, that's, that's what we do here, right? So when we get to the 70 weeks, we already discussed that this is an answer to prayer. And in the 70 weeks of Daniel, what Mark read for us in those last verses, which the reason why I wanted us to understand that, is that they, those 70 weeks were done for a specific reason. Daniel says that God is going to do whatever he's doing in order to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make real reconciliation for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to, to uh, seal up the vision that prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And those 70 weeks amount to 490 years. Does that number ring a bell? Right? So 490 years, they had not observed the Sabbath years. And God says, I'm going to bring you to captivity for 70 years. And then when the clock starts, we're going to start counting down the next 490 years. We all know that there's a break between the 69th and the 70th week, which means between the 483rd year and the 490th year. And we haven't yet started that last week. Now, when we look at this, I'll just say before we go to this slide, that when we go to that 70-week prophecy, people always wonder, how is it that God is talking about weeks of years when we understand weeks as being weeks of days? Hopefully by now, that's in, that, you're, that you've already come to that understanding in our discussion, because God was talking about Sabbath years. If you understand what, what Daniel was referring to, he was referring to Jeremiah, he was referring to Leviticus, and the whole discussion has been about Sabbath years. The Sabbath year is the seventh year. So when you look at that, the prophecy in Daniel, he, it doesn't really say seven weeks or seven, 70 weeks. It says 77s. And their term sevens was like our term dozens. So if I tell you that I'm going to give you four dozens, your question is four dozens of what? In the Jewish mind, there were only two answers to that. Four dozens, four, four, uh, seven, sevens of days? or sevens of years. Those are the only two things that were possible. We understand that the whole discussion up until the time we get to this prophecy is in sevens of years. So it doesn't change when we get to the prophecy. It's all about sevens of years. But we had asked the question, why did God not hold them responsible for the year of Jubilee? And this is where we begin to wrap up. And this is the reason why. Because the year of Jubilee was cyclical. Every 50 years. And every 50 years, God was going to reset the people so they would be his witnesses once again, and his glory would be on display once again. But what, he, what we see is that there's a map in between what was accomplished or what was intended to be accomplished in the year of Jubilee and what God would finally accomplish in that seven week prophecy. So we said obedience was one of the things that God wanted them to now grab, grab onto. God says the reason for the 70 weeks is to finish the transgression. What's the transgression? It is where Israel, his people, and all men have transgressed him. They've gone against his will. So that's going to be finished. The reason for the 70 weeks prophecy is to consummate his, is to, not to consummate his plan of redemption. To complete, I should say, his plan of redemption. So sin is going to be done away with. People will be finally obedient to God. We say another reason for the, for the uh, year of Jubilee was so that the people repent. God said he would make an end of sin. We look forward to mercy in the year of Jubilee. God said he would make a reconciliation for iniquity. Then we look forward to restoration in the year of Jubilee. God said he would bring an everlasting righteousness. 
in this 70-year prophecy. We look forward to blessings. God said he would seal the vision and the promises. Everything he promises has a blessing he said he would do will be done. And then finally we look forward to the year of Jubilee would bring out God's glory. And it says that this time he'll anoint the most holy. So the year of Jubilee was going to happen every 50 years. God finally says that what I was planning on doing with you cyclically, I'm going to do with you finally. So I hope you see that if we're reading this prophecy in, or this, this prayer in Daniel, it is informed by so much. By the time we get to the prophecy that he speaks in at the end of chapter 9, it's entirely related to what God had planned for his people in terms of their renewal, their redemption, and their restoration. What he was doing in the year of Jubilee would be accomplished every 50 years. He never once observed it. He says, rather than when he talks about a physical renewal, you have now dead people with sin, I'm going to physically all of that. So what now I'm giving you as an answer to your prayer, Daniel, is I'm telling you the same story. This is how it's finally going to end. You're tired of your people sitting. You're interceding with their behalf. You're pleading with me. And your soul is dead. What I'm doing with you now, I'm letting you know that in the final analysis, what I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to be achieved. And the way that is going to be achieved is in the way that I'm instructing you now. So I want you to continue to pray with hope. Now, there was one thing that we didn't state as we were going through this, and then I'll close. The thing that we did not state is that Daniel praying this prayer in year 67? He knew he had three years to go. Why was he praying this prayer in year 67? The reason why is because if you look at what it says in Daniel in Jeremiah 29, God says that He's going to bring all these things to come about when the hearts of His people are turned toward Him, who are in captivity. At the time that Daniel prayed this, the hearts of the people were so far from God. They were still not serving him. God had told them, when you get, when you go into captivity, be a blessing to society. Procreate. Worship me. When you go to the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, you see Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Otherwise, only Daniel and Benjamin. What other human names do you see? Some of them had assimilated into society. Others of them remained separate, but they weren't going toward God's glory. They were taking part in the traditions of society. Daniel says, We are an unrighteous people. We're, we're in a pagan land and we're living unrighteously. So if God's going to bring us out in three years, we've got to start getting it right now. So where you're at right now, in terms of where you're living right now, you need to live in light of prophecy. You need to live in light of hope that prophecy brings. You need to live in light of judgment that prophecy promises. And we need to go ahead and warn everybody and witness to everyone about who the Lord is. And don't just tell them Jesus loves you, where that is true. Tell them that your sin will be judged. There is a hell. Just as sure as there is a heaven. And if you have not come to understand 
Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, if you've not repented and believed the gospel, then my urging for all who are in the hearing of my voice is that you do exactly that. That you love the God who loved you. That you love the God who sent his son down to this earth to live, suffer, die, and rise, that you might have life through him. And you'll find that you now have a peace that surpasses all understanding because he will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. In Mark's introduction to me, he was saying that that is how we met on the planet. There's an urgency to our witness. There is a resolve to our living. And it's based on what God has written, of what he, what he has said, and what he has said he's going to do. Because as Daniel was so confident that God would, take, would, would keep his promises, we can be that confident as well. So let's close in prayer. Father God, we just love you. We thank you. We worship you. Thank you for this time in your word. I just ask that your people would have been edified and that you would have been glorified. We just thank you for the study that you brought us through. We thank you, dear Lord God, that you have communicated so clearly to us, that you have instructed us in such a wonderful way. You're a beautiful God, and we love you. So I ask that you would be with the people of Cornerstone Congregational Church. I ask that you would be specifically with the elders of the church. And as Jonathan leads this church in terms of their going forward for you, along with Mark and along with John, that, Lord God, they would do so with clear direction from you, that their hearts would be separated unto you, that they as elders of this church would spend their time in prayer for the people of this church. And the people of this church would dedicate themselves to just worshiping you in spirit and in truth. So, Lord God, please let your face shine upon these people and give them all of your blessings. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is both our Lord and our God. We pray these things.